You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ralph Ellison was born in Oklahoma and trained as a musician at Tuskegee Institute from 1933 to 1936, at which time a visit to New York and a meeting with Richard Wright led to his first attempts at fiction. His novel Invisible Man won the National Book Award. He was appointed to the Academy of American Arts and Letters in 1964, where he taught at several institutions, including Bard College, the University of Chicago, New York University, where he was Albert Schweitzer Professor of Humanities. John F. Callahan, one of my guests, is Morgan S. O'Dell Professor of Humanities at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. His writings include a novel, A Man You Could Love. He's the editor of the Modern Library Edition of the Collected Essays of Ralph Ellison and is literary executor of Ralph Ellison's estate. Thank you for joining me, John. You're welcome. Thank you. And we have with me uh, Adam Bradley. He's an associate professor of English at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Ralph Ellison in Progress, a critical study of Ellison's unfinished second novel. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Thanks, Rick. Looking forward to it. Now, um, John, I'd like you to tell me about how you first met Ralph Ellison. Sure. Uh, I'd read Invisible Man in, in college and been uh, very moved and influenced by the book. And uh, I kind of, once I got my Ph.D., I'd intended to, uh, I kind of was interested in writing about Ellison at some point, and uh, I worked on Fitzgerald for a while. And then in, in 1977, I wrote an essay that was argued that uh, Invisible Man's essay, I mean, Ralph Ellison's essays provided not only a way to read Invisible Man, but a way to read American literature. And it came out, and and I uh, read it, and, and still liked it, and liked it well enough that I said I decided I'd send it to Ralph. And so I got his address somewhere, and sent it to him, you know, very formally, dear Mr. Ellison. And uh, that was that. But it wasn't that. About a month later, I got back a two-page single-space letter from Ellison, in which he he uh, liked the essay and talked about the essay and talked about various other things, and at the end of it, he said, if you're ever in New York and have the time, Mrs. Ellison and I would be glad to uh, to meet you. Well, I I didn't go to the airport that night. I, I restrained myself, but I, I was in New York <laughs> several months later, and, and the Ellison, you know, we worked out a, and, uh, and met him on uh, on that occasion. I might just tell you a wee bit about the, the meeting, because it tells a lot about what Ellison was all about and uh, what he was like as a, as, a, as a guy, as a person, as a human being, and where our friendship uh, friendship came from. They were very formal people. Uh, they were very warm, very formal. They ushered me into the apartment. It was a uh, sun-splashed uh, place on in, in the spring day in May. Excuse me. Ellison ushered me into the into the uh, into the living room. Living room. There was an Italian marble table and. On either side, there was a leather couch, and he put me on in one couch, and he took the other one. And for 50 minutes, we <clears throat> we talked back and forth, and very formally, uh, even kind of portentously, as if we were characters out of one of James's later novels. And 
And at about five minutes to five, I hear this this uh, bang on the on the table. He slapped his hand down hard <clears throat> on the table, and he said, "Well, John, not Mr. Callahan anymore. Well, John, <clears throat> would you like a drink?" And I said, uh, "Why, yes, Mister. What? Sure, Ralph. That's better." He said, "That's better." When he would at key moments, he would he would often lapse into a kind of Oklahoma drawl, and so he returns with a bottle of bourbon and a glass, um, puts it on his side and a bottle of Irish whiskey and puts it in a glass. He puts it on my side. Uh, <clears throat> and then we were, we were off from, from that point uh, on. And to give you an example of, 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 <clears throat> of, of how uh, Ellison really lived beyond the, the easy categories or even the difficult categories, I remember ten, about ten years later, uh, I was up at his farm and in, in his place, his summer place in the Berkshires, and uh, I said, you know, Ralph, I, I kind of wanted to ask you a question, question for about 10 years. And he said, well, go ahead. And, and I said, you know, I've always wondered what the hell you would have done with that Irish whiskey if you hadn't liked me. And he just looked at me and a little disappointment in, in his eyes. And he said, for God's sake, John, I like Irish whiskey, too. You couldn't get him with those categories. I mean, Ellison was, <laughs> was just, uh, you know, who lived beyond them, lived in another in another realm. So. I met him, and I think it was, it's a good American story because uh, I earned the meeting with him. I wrote the essay uh, on his work, and he read the essay, and, and he liked it. And, and, and even, even then, though, there was a kind of initiation, which is the point of the story. Um, Adam, I, I'd like you to tell me the first time you met John. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I was a high school student at... Uh, was looking at colleges. I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I, I decided I would look at this college in Portland, Oregon, Lewis and Clark. So I took a trip up there, and uh, it was during the spring semester, I believe, and one of the things we, we could do while we were visiting as, as prospective students was to kind of try to meet a professor or two or sit in on a class. And I believe I met John right then, and, and one of the things that, that struck me about that meeting was just the, the way that I could tell right off that this was someone who was interested in me, specifically in me, and, and, and was interested in what I had to say, even as though I was just this high school kid on, on the campus. Well, when I finally arrived at Lewis and Clark uh, to begin my studies there, you know, one of the first things I did was to try to find this Professor Callahan and sign up for a class, and I took a class with him my freshman year in African-American literature. and In that class, we, we read uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. <laughs> the first time I'd been, I'd been experienced, um, had any experience reading Ellison's work, had a profound impact upon me. So for me, in my mind, John Callahan and Ralph Ellison kind of uh, came together at, the, at that moment to reach out to me, and it was, it was a critical critical opportunity that, that even became more of an opportunity the next year when uh, John asked me to be his research assistant when, when he was asked to uh, be Ellison's other executive. So that this, this is really how it all began, and it's, it's tied up in, in these two men. One of the things that, that I find, and many of us find really fascinating, is Ellison's you know 40-year struggle to, to write this novel. But I, I think that um, it seems clear to me in, in reading uh, what, what is there that this is 
he was struggling to do much more than write a novel. And what he was trying to create something that I think was beyond what we would categorize as a novel. John? Yeah, Rick, I think there's something to that. Let me take a stab at that, because that's, that's actually something I've been thinking quite a bit about uh, over, over the years. Mm-hmm. Because one of my earliest things was the second novel, at least to understanding the, the craft of fiction mm-hmm. in reading Ellison's drafts as a, as a young student, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what, what I think... You're exactly right that there's, there are things about three days before the shooting and the, the broader manuscript and drafts from which it, it emerges that would defy our, our accepted conventions of the novel today. I think in some ways it, it opens the form back up. I mean, novel, after all, means new. And, and so in, in that way, this is a, a novel form, one that expands beyond the constraints of uh, what's become kind of conventionalized over the years. So I think in, in a way it's almost a throwback book. It's one that, that goes back to the origins of, of the term and that, that challenges us uh, both in its form and its character and its, its expression to, to rethink our accepted understandings of, of these terms. John, you know, you've been living with this novel for for a long time now, since since you met uh, Mr. Ellison. Talk about your journey through this novel, um, some of the high points and the low points. How did you—you must have had a lot of experience with this before you were found yourself in possession of, of an incredible archive. Well, yes and no, Rick. Uh, you know, I, like everybody else, <clears throat> I read the—I eagerly read the— the excerpt from the novel that, that, that came out, mm-hmm. uh, the first one came out in 1960, and uh, I think I read that in the, mid, uh, in the mid-70s, 74, 75, uh, a piece called And Hickman uh, Arrives. And it was, it was stunning, it was fascinating, and to sense that, that Ellison's theme was, 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 I mean, if we say that Invisible Man was the, was the novel of, of segregation, a novel of America under Jim Crow, then Ellison's second novel was a novel where he, as he, as he wrote uh, in a letter that I came across much, much later, as you suggest, after his passing, uh, a letter written right after Brown v. Board. The second novel was with, with the, uh, the change, the drastic change that was taking place, had taken place, had taken place and was taking place and going to take place in America as a consequence of, of the uh, nullification, at least in law, of separate but equal as, as the law of the land. And this novel, he always talked about it as a novel that was about the uh, evasion <clears throat> of identity, what he called a characteristic American problem. And so this novel, the, and Hickman arrives and other things from, from this novel, were really about that, uh, they were about that, that theme about Ellison really uh, writing about and, and, and trying to get a grip on not only the possibilities, but the, the possibilities both creative and destructive, which uh, flowed from uh, Brown v. Board and, and, and from, paradoxically, even from integration, or at least were, were uh, triggered by it. But the thing about, uh, the thing about it is that, that uh, people tend to think that because I was a close friend of Ralph's and because and I was, Mrs. Ellison named me his, literary executor, 
that I, that I was really privy to a whole lot about the second novel. And that simply isn't the case. I mean, uh, that, Ellison was very private about the second novel. Once in a while, he would, he would talk about it. Uh, as often as not, or more often, he would not talk about it. Sometimes he, he was exhilarated in the, in, in the, by the writing he was doing. At other times, you could tell that he, it wasn't going particularly well. Um, and so the novel was a mystery. The novel was a mystery to me, uh, at least as much as it was a mystery to uh, everybody else. I had some acquaintance with it, but I didn't have, I didn't have a kind of bird's-eye view of it until Mrs. Ellison walked me into his study in 94 and, and invited you to help me uh, decide what to do about Ralph's novel, what he, what he, uh, what he left behind. And even Mrs. Ellison wasn't <clears throat> absolutely, she wasn't really, uh, she knew, uh, obviously she'd, she'd worked with him on it, helped him <clears throat> a good deal, but she, for her, the novel, to some, to some extent, was a mystery. That is how far he had progressed, how far he had to, uh, he had to go. So then it was, a, it was a, and maybe I'll, the directions that you, if you have other ones, I mean, I can talk about what, how gradually I, in working with the novel, what was what? Well, what uh, the the attempts at the novel, the, the narratives that uh, within this saga. I mean, I began to realize. I had hoped that, as Ellison implied, very shortly before he passed away, he implied that he he said he would have something very soon. He told Remnick of the New Yorker that in his last public interview. Well, I, I'll have something very soon. And he was cagey. He said something. He didn't say the finished novel, uh, but he said he would have something very soon. But I had to uh, <clears throat> to get acquainted with what he did leave, and and very gradually, <clears throat> slowly, and very painfully, really almost against my will, I had to conclude that he hadn't finished it. No question about it, he hadn't finished it. And I spent a long time trying to find what I thought were I, you know, and scoping it out. I thought, well, what the hell? He might have. This novel could have been bent into shape with, say, as few as perhaps as fifty pages of, of, of transitional stuff, transition, transitional passages, had he ch so chosen. And, and it became very clear that, that, that I wasn't going to find uh, what, what, what we had. What I had was what, uh, what he left, and, and that was that, and I wasn't going to find any more. And in, in working with the material and trying to, to sort it through and, and connect with it, I realized that he was quite a long way from finishing, mm. finishing the novel. Now, you and Adam have, have, have uh, talked a little bit about the novel before I began to uh, to respond here, and it seems to me that the the novel kind of ballooned for, mm -hmm. for Ralph. I mean, the, the the material was uh, was manageable. It seems to me potentially manageable, and this is why going back to Adam's comments, this is such a fascinating uh, matter. It's, it's it's really a, a, a fascinating kind of conundrum and predicament that Ralph. Uh, got into here, because in, in many ways, uh, if you think about all of the novels, the long novels that, that exist, the, the second novel, you can't boil it down. I mean, you've got, uh, <clears throat> you've got the fundamental narrative of <clears throat> Bliss and Hickman, and uh, Bliss, growing up to be Sun Raider, uh, passes, runs away, and, and, then, and then is assassinated by London and neglected, assassinated on the Senate floor. And in many ways, you know, even the title, Three Days Before the Shooting, later on Ralph changed that sentence to Two Days Before the Shooting. So the, the dramatic action of the novel takes place in a, a short uh, amount of time. And, uh, and it isn't that Ellison was, was doing what, uh, uh, what Joyce did in, in Ulysses, although, although some of the material might, might have a, 
uh, a mythic and mythological quality to it. But he had the, he had the white report of McIntyre, the scene, the issue, the, the problem, the, the drama from his point of view. Then you had the antiphonal second book, Bliss and Hickman, call and response, back and forth, inside uh, narratives, outside narratives. And then you had, uh, you had the uh, material in, o- in Oklahoma, some in Georgia, but principally in, in Oklahoma. And uh, Ellison could have, the, the potential is there in this material, it seems to me, for, to have, for, for the material to have been bent into shape and, and, and for it to have been uh, cut, revised, tightened into a novel. It would have been long, maybe, but probably not, not necessarily longer than, than Invisible Man, uh, which is a novel that Ellison chose to, uh, to cut in his, the last draft of it. He cut it by a quarter. But that wasn't the way Ellison was moving. That isn't the way his mm. mind and heart and imagination took him. He kept expanding. Characters would come in, new characters would come into his head, new episodes would come into his head, and he kept writing them. Because I think we could say that the manuscripts we found that uh, were dated in Fanny's hand, uh, July, June, July of 1972, and that's book one and book two. I think he revised the the the, the now the version of it that we're working with it shows some signs of at least part of it being having been written after 1972. But anyway, fundamentally, he had the thing done by two, and then he had Bliss's excerpt, very very crucial to the novel, to to Bliss and Hickman, and to, the, to the fundamental story. So he had all that material, and then but what does he do? And and, and he's at NYU, and, and and he doesn't, as Adam will probably tell you in, in a minute. Um, he gets a computer in 91, starts composing on the computer in 92. And he did tell many of us who were his hey, friends, God, I'm going, to be, I'm going to retire from NYU, and then, by God, now coincides with the computer. But what does he do? He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to line up what I have done, and, uh, and I'm going to write the transitions, I'm going to, I'm going to revise this novel and, 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 and hammer it into shape. Instead of that, he begins to compose. Now, much of what he composes is, 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 is stuff that he's already, there already were drafts of it, but he, he, he embarks again. For example, the long, long, long Oklahoma stuff, instead of having McIntyre go to Oklahoma to solve the mystery, he has Hickman go to Oklahoma. And, and he adds a good deal of material about Hickman's ruminations, about Oklahoma, about America, race, and kinship and all the rest of it. So it seems to me that, that, that and this goes back to the, to the question that you asked Adam about uh, the novel and Adam's response about the novel form. I mean, in, 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 in some ways, Ellison's preoccupations, I think, uh, I don't say they took, they made a new form out of the novel. I don't think that's true. But what they did was, was I, think, I think some of his preoccupations uh, burst, be, went beyond the actual form of the novel as he and maybe we conceive it and, and, and got into various broodings and ruminations. And it was as if some of the, the stuff in, in the computer printout strikes me as uh, Ralph trying through Hickman to get every single thing he felt and thought and, and, and hoped and feared uh, about America, about existence, about personality, about any damn thing, to get it down on paper. So it almost was, was it was a, it's, it was almost writing that, that, that was camouflaged by the novel in some sense. It's very, very strange, very mysterious. 
Now, I'd like for um, both of you to talk about, I mean, putting this together, there just must have been some physical challenges in gathering all the material. So, um, Adam and John, could you talk about just encountering, you know, papers, computer disks, computer files, computer printouts, dating? This is a significant challenge, a journey that itself is worthy of a novel. Yeah, I'm sure there's an element of the, I don't know, almost like CSI to it. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the kind of work that we had to do. I mean, the first thing that should be said is that uh, this Congress holds Ellison's papers. There are something along the lines of 46,000 individual items related to, to Ellison's life and work in that archive. And a fair number of those are related to, to the second novel. Uh, some of the most to me, remarkable items in, in the archive are actually Ellison's notes, mm. a sampling of which we included in three days before the shooting. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is that they offer a kind of running gloss on this you know, mammoth work. They give us insights into character, into narrative sequence, into Ellison's ruminations on the country as well as on the state of this particular novel over the course of, you know, four, 40 years. And it's, it's quite something. So to hold those and be able to just have the, that tactile experience, to me, was, was one of the most arresting elements of it. I mean, there are some times when you can pick up a sheet of this typing paper and still within the, the fibers of the paper smell the cigar smoke. I mean, it's such a remarkable, intimate Sort of, sort of connection, particularly for someone in my position, since I never had the opportunity to meet Ellison. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these notes are, are such a, a striking record. One of the other interesting elements of the archive uh, has to do with what John's already alluded to, these different periods of composition. So we have all of these early drafts from the 50s and into the 60s, where Ellison is working on individual episodes, many of them related to uh, Hickman and, and, and uh, McIntyre and others in Oklahoma. And they're on a bunch of different colors of paper. I mean, it's a small, simple thing, but just green paper that adds a kind of texture to the experience of it. Mm-hmm. Moving through that to the typescripts, moving finally into the computer files where we have over 80 disks in which he saved you know, hundreds of files over the year, over more than a decade, uh, in no particular clear order within the disks. So mm-hmm. moving, you know, you may begin with a, a portion of of a, a narrative that's on bit twenty-three, <laughs> on and on and on through the archive, mm-hmm. a kind of high literary jigsaw puzzle. That, that's what I see when I look at this, and it it tells a, a different story, but a powerful story about Ellison's work over these these decades. And it strikes me as well that these <clears throat> papers and, and and this novel and, and all the the archive material you went through form a kind of a a, a pocket history of, of American literature as well. I mean, it's a it's a look at the way that American literary writing has developed over the past, you know, eighty years, say. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And, and one of the things that helps is that we have, with Ellison's second novel, a fixed point. Mm-hmm. He, he never diverted from having the novel set in the mid-1950s. Mm-hmm. So even as the years 
went by, it, was, it, it became an historical novel, in essence. Uh, he, was, he stuck to that date. So within that, though, he found ways to create a kind of amoebic form that, that enveloped later, later history within that particular time frame. Mm-hmm. This is, as, as, as uh, John mentioned earlier, earlier, this is a novel about the civil rights movement, about integration, where Invisible Man was the novel of Jim Crow. At the same time, it's a novel that embraces pretty much the second, the sweep of the second half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's many iterations. And so there are moments, for instance, one in particular that sticks out, where Ellison uh, mentions the lunar landing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a small ahistorical sort of thing. It's, it's anachronistic. Nonetheless, shows that Ellison didn't stay fixed, even if his putative time period did. John, could you yeah. talk about creating uh, Juneteenth? Sure. Uh, and, and one one addendum on what uh, what Adam was was just talking about, because I think that's really the nub of uh, of what Ellison faced. On the one hand, mm-hmm. his uh, continued fixing of the time of the novel, circa ninety five. Uh, and yet the, the fact that he was uh, writing, say, uh, well, 10, 20, 30, almost 40 years after that, and uh, with the consciousness of a man who very much kept up on, on his times and who, was, who very much cont- kept up on, on the, the changing nature of America in the, as one contemporary moment led to another. And uh, somehow, he is, as Adam says... It is quite accurate that Ellison. He, he perhaps at times you, you wonder whether at times he might have thought, "What the hell? I'm, uh, the, you know, I, I'd like to use the lunar lander landing <laughs> in a scene." Mm-hmm. So maybe what I got to do is, is is make the time of the, in which this story is set a little bit more elastic. Maybe I'm going to have you know take it up to the to the 70s or 69, and but he doesn't do that. So that that <clears throat> the bits. That the kind of shards of uh, of, of uh, ever enfolding contemporary history uh, come out, as Adam said, anachronistically in this in this novel, almost as if he this novel. It's yes, it's a novel, but it's also a kind of ex- beyond that. Perhaps it's, it's a kind of extended essay, which is, is meant to suggest Ellison's mind moving through uh, moving through history. I don't know. Now you ask about Juneteenth, and uh, my the, the um, what happened was I I got shipped the boxes with with all of the material out to uh, Oregon in the summer of 1994, and and asked uh, Adam and I was working on the collected essays at that point. I asked Adam if if he was uh, willing to uh, to go through and kind of inventory them and make sure that 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 there were copies that they. You know the the pagination was was accurate, and 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 also uh, Adam asked about uh, reading them, and I said, "You bet, of course you can re- read the stuff." And and so Adam read them as well. So we we became acquainted with this material, and uh, and then Adam had a had courses to take. He had a degree to get, and I had uh, the essays to finish. And and I I, I really geared up for the, the next year, ninety five, ninety, a fellowship. That's a, a walk from the Library of Congress, where by that point the originals of all of Ellison's stuff 
uh, would be and, and was uh, stored. And, uh, and so I, I boxed up the stuff again. We, we copied it. Adam chiefly uh, copied the materials. So we had a copy in, in Portland, and I took a copy with me to, uh, to Washington and, and worked through all of this stuff, you know, the computer stuff, the typescripts, still for much of that time searching for, you know, uh, missing pieces of the novel. And I just could not find them. I remember going up to New York one day and, and uh, in, in the, in the wintertime, a freezing, bitter cold day, and, and went up there and, and searched through the, the Ellison apartment for four hours or more. And I couldn't find what I was looking for, and I was, very, I was grimy, dirty, and, uh, and discouraged. And uh, Mrs. Ellison said, you know, what's the matter? Didn't you find what you were looking for? And I said, no, I didn't. And she said, well, you might look under this, you know, look in the box under, it's under the table. And I went under the table and grabbed the box. She said, she laughed. She said, no, no, not that one, the one way under in the box, way over in the corner underneath this elegant dining room table. And I banged my head on the table a couple of times and found this box. And what I found in the box at the bottom was stuff she didn't know was there. Uh, I'd never heard of or heard Ralph talk about or seen before. It wasn't from the second novel, but it was a, a cache of, of unpublished stories that Ralph wrote when he was a, a young man in the 30s, right after he met Wright and went to Dayton. His mother passed away, and he stayed there for six months and began in earnest to write fiction. Well, that said, hey, these things should be published. So I edited the, uh, the, the, the selected stories of, of, uh, of Ellison. But then when as that year came to conclusion, I realized, that, that the uh, you know what I needed to do was just put all of this stuff together and I and I did so and it seemed to me that the uh, I wouldn't as, as Adam has said what was there uh, <clears throat> you can call it an unfinished second novel that's <clears throat> probably the closest we can come to a, 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 a you know a, a definition that that is useful but <clears throat> it wasn't a, it wasn't really in a, in a, a finished form and. You had to speculate about all that, but it seemed to me it had. So I, I thought, God, what's to be done? And uh, I went back, and, and, and it, it always it seemed to me the more I worked on the stuff, the more it, it seemed to me the central narrative was was Book Two and Bliss's birth was basically the story of Hickman, and not all of Book Two because he veers off toward the end of that, but was the story of Bliss and Hickman. So Mrs. Ellison and I talked about it. I, I, I talked about it with the people at Random House, and, and it seemed to me that the thing to do was to put together, uh, the, uh, assemble that stuff, and, and, and see if it, were, if it could become a standalone, a narrative that could stand on its own, not as the whole novel. We never claimed that. Even Random House, they might have overhyped it a little bit about this is the Ellison's second novel, and that was, that was a, a mistake to the extent that was done, because this wasn't, as I said very emphatically, this is not... Ellison's, the whole of Ellison's second novel, it's about 20%. But it seemed to me that, one, it was incredibly arresting uh, and, and riveting on, on the part of the reader, a really, a really wonderful story, brilliantly written and, and, and very, very important. So I felt that should, have, that should go out and be in, uh, in, uh, in, in the hands of every, 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 everybody that really is a reader, certainly all of Ellison's readers, hence Hence Juneteenth, and at the same, and I did that thinking, and Adam and I talked about this, <clears throat> thinking that well, the, the next move and a related move is to put all of the uh, actual narratives that, that Ralph had uh, 
finished or came near to finishing and uh, had strung out anyway, in episode after episode, uh, into what <coughs> at the time I called a, a scholarly edition. But as, as, as Adam has, has said, uh, not today, but on a number of other occasions, we worked on the material, the more we realized that it needed to be scholarly, yes, but <coughs> we needed to keep our prints off it as, as much as possible, not edit it in the, in the conventional way, have a, a couple of introductions, and some editor's notes, and then and, and, and then and then basically have the volume be a reader's edition with a certain kind of scholarly apparatus, uh, because then so so that by did, and you reader have got to make what you will of it. Uh, but we also wanted to to you know to be something of a almost a, not not quite invisible but nearly invisible guides to the reader, and hence the uh, the apparatus and, and hence the appendices with. The copy with samples of Ellison's variants, several early shorter drafts of the opening of Book Two, and and perhaps as important as anything else, the two things: Ellison's notes and the uh, eight versions, uh, the eight excerpts from the book that he published during his lifetime. So I, I believe that the uh, <coughs> the Juneteenth and three days before the shooting are complementary, mm-hmm. although neither is Ellison's. Neither is the finished second novel. Neither is the entire novel, of course. One, a quote that just leaped out at me was one, the mind becomes the scene of the action. It seems to be a, 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 a one way of, of getting at what was going on in, in the creation of this novel. Mm-hmm. Sure, in the creation and in the narration. Mm-hmm. One of the, the market qualities of book two in particular and the typescripts, book two, which became the, the source uh, for Juneteenth, is, is this uh, movement that Ellison makes of the action into the minds of his characters, into this, this kind of uh, call and response exchange of reverie between uh, Hickman and the senator, uh, with Hickman at the senator's bedside, reliving the past, going through history together crafting this, this, at least I've called a kind of Faulknerian uh, narrative form. So that's, that's certainly going on, but the thing that, that I marvel at, and the reason why I think that for, for all of Juneteenth's value, and I think Juneteenth's value is, is considerable, what makes it even more compelling is to look at Juneteenth now in relation to three days, mm-hmm. and think about the other na- narrative elements that come in in three days, that, you know, the difference between amazing you know, John Coltrane solo and then putting that in the broader context of an entire uh, long piece. And now we have the piece, as incomplete as it is, but we have the pieces where Ellison actually moves away from that principle of, of narration moving to the mind and actually externalizes it in, in the last decade of, of his composition. So much of what he wrote on the computer is, is, is rather episodic and, and about action. I mean, one dramatic example I'll give you is uh, the the prologue from the typescripts, seven pages long, and mm-hmm. it begins with that wonderful sentence, you know, three days before the shooting, uh, you know, leading directly to the end of that sentence, which says you know, about them being uh, turned away at the at the senator's um, office. Well, pretty much what Ellison does in the section published in three days under the title. Uh, Hickman in Washington, D.C., is to turn that 
single little portion into 300-plus pages where we have Hickman and his parishioners arriving at the airport, walking through the airport, finding a taxi, going to the hotel, Hickman taking a shower, going down to the lobby, on and on and on, eating some barbecue. I mean, all of these sorts of quotidian actions that Ellison meant to kind of build toward the grand action of, of the shooting itself. Uh, but it's just such a markedly different narrative technique from what we see him doing in the 1970s uh, through the typescripts. Those, those two can live together. That's what's so wonderful about an unfinished book like this. We don't need to make the choice. Ellison never made the choice. We can have these coexist in the same book. It's kind of like a book that has uh, different alternate history versions of itself. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's a very good way to put it. Um, That's a very good way to put it. Could, could you talk uh, about the influence of <clears throat> the way that Ellison wrote? I mean, starting out with hand, moving to typewriter, and then I think the, obviously the biggest change is that was brought about was by the computer, which has had a remarkable effect on literature worldwide. And it's interesting to see it here in this one man's work where we can really get um, side-by-side comparisons of the same... Uh, events, the same actual novel written on two in two different mediums. Yeah, I yeah, want to grab it. Yeah, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, <clears throat> you can fill in, but uh, okay. one, of, one of the things that, that we did, Rick, to kind of dra- dramatize what you're talking about is to, to show that opening sentence mm-hmm. in three different iterations, to show it uh, ultimately uh, in the final iteration in which Ellison in 1993 revises the opening uh, and expands it by, you know, over probably 20, 20 words, adding words that, that don't necessarily move things, but rather equivocate and and, and so forth. Uh, there's a there's generally a move toward um, toward parsing language, toward uh, being expansive, toward all these sorts of things that I think have something to do with the computer. The computer. I think supported, it aided and embedded Ellison's native um, capacity uh, of compositional technique, whereby he he worked upon the principle of revising episodes and, and tinkering. He was a tinkerer above all else, and and you see this certainly taken to an extreme because the computer allowed him to do it with with little with little sweat. I mean, you, you didn't have to retype the entire. Mm-hmm. Uh, manuscript every time you, you wanted to, to make small revisions uh, as, you, as you would on the, the, the typewriter. So that there's that change, and I think it affects the nature of his prose, and it, it also supports what John talked about earlier, this, this move toward the essayistic mm-hmm. voice uh, that, uh, of Hickman, where Ellison seems to be trying to get as much as possible as he can on American culture and politics into this voice of this character. The computer also aided that by, by supporting uh, ultimately what became the bifurcation of the voice. We actually have uh, Hickman speaking both in a blues tone voice and in the, the, the sacred voice of, of the preacher. And Ellison dramatizes that within uh, these, these later drafts. So these are things that I think are matters of our but also of the instrument that he's employing to, to, to write these episodes. 
you know, um, you use the word instrument. You mentioned John Coltrane. Um, John, I'd like you to talk about the influence of music in Ellison's work because it seems primal and critically important. It's as if, I mean, in many ways, uh, this book perhaps could be seen, you know, if John Coltrane tried to play uh, a version of American history. You know, I think I, Ellison is a jazz man, and, uh, and, and again, <clears throat> very, he, he had a, his, uh, his love for jazz was very closely tied to swing. Uh, talk about Armstrong and Duke Ellington was Ellison's man, and of course, uh, Ellington could do these wonderfully short tunes and ballads and songs. But he also had had a kind of symphonic reach and dimension. And the other thing I'd say about about Ellison and music and, and, and Ellison's uh, particular relationship and connection to jazz, the old uh, saying, "It don't mean a thing if it, if it don't have that swing. It don't mean a thing. It don't mean a thing if it don't have that swing." Ellison was was uh, you know very much Ray brought up and, and raised and, and, and continued to love uh, jazz that you could dance to, and uh, and he used to talk about that a good a good deal of the time as well. And it seems to me that that the uh, that the sentences in the in the in, in the book people remark over and over again about the, Ellison's uh, sentences is lovely sentences and uh, and the sentences swing they move and and there's a kind of rhythm in them and this is what what Adam was talking about a few minutes ago it, almost a, a kind of I think almost a kind of change in Ellison's heartbeat in Ellison's very physical as well as intellectual and aesthetic and emotional metabolism from some of the the sentences of, of uh, the the uh, so, you know the, the the sentences in 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 the uh, in the typescripts in book one and book two and and, and, and Bliss's birth seem to me to be to be the sentences of somebody at the top form most energetic driving uh, pulsing form and, and 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 heartbeat and and later on is there's, there's a serenity and Ellison talks about this in a interview with John Hersey. I mean, there's a kind of serenity that, that, that comes into the, into the writing, a settled quality. It's almost as if, uh, not consciously perhaps, but it's almost that in the, in the, in the, in, in the, in the work and in, 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 in the writing that's on the page and on the, the computer is, is somebody who's much more settled, somebody who is really trying, and that's that word that we talk about, you and, you and me, Adam, so often. He's trying to recapitulate thing, a sum, aura of a summing up, he talks about. So you have, and it seems to me that his instrument for that, the computer may be the instrument on which he's, he's composing, but the instrument through which he's composing is the character of Alonzo Hickman. That's that right. Hickman is the instrument through which Ralph is going to project his own summing up about, uh, about America. Well, could, could, I'd like each of you to talk about you know your lives with these characters because they come so completely to life, and you get a what I would describe as a parallax view of them because of the different versions and, and you know the overlapping narratives and the different forms that we take. So I, I'd like each of you to talk about you know your lives with these characters and how your experience of these characters informed how you worked with the material. Yeah, I mean. Well, as, as you know, 
when one comes across a, a literary character and they inhabit your mind for good, Invisible Man certainly inhabited my mind and, and these characters, particularly Hickman and Bliss and some of the, the um, secondary characters as well. Now people, my mind, and, and I'll find myself sometimes looking at the world with Hickman's eyes, with the kind of sense for the tragic comic, with uh, a certain appreciation of elsewhere called the beautiful absurdity of our American identity. Now, that's what these characters have done for me, and Hickman in particular, as he emerges in the computers and as he emerges as a kind of, as John was just saying, as a kind of uh, instrument for Ellison, uh, takes on powerful, powerful place in my own view of the world and helps me in, in work that I do that has absolutely nothing to do with Ellison. I've mm. just finished writing a couple books on hip-hop about as far from Ralph Ellison's type of music as you can imagine. And though Ellison likely was never a fan of, of Jay-Z or Snoop Dogg, he helps me become a more acute observer of the music, a deeper listener, and ultimately, I think, a better critic of life and the world. So that's what these characters have done for me, and they've, they've I think, uh, been with us on this journey in the 15-plus years that John and I have been working on this novel as, as we've, we've edited it, not in a strange Alice Walker way <laughs> where they actually come down and speak to us, but, but in a way of, of, of informing uh, our understanding of the novel as it evolved in Ellison's mind. John? Yeah, I, I think, uh, uh, again, Hickman and, and, and Bliss who is such a wonderful combination. Because here, here is Hickman, who as a, as, as a young man is an, has an amazing uh, power of, of energy and, and vitality, and, and he blows it. He says he blows it through, through his horn, through his jazz horn, and, uh, and he's very much a man of the flesh. There's a... Uh, and then he the 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 the, the mystery of, of Bliss's birth and Hickman's midwifing this, literally midwifing this child, bringing the child into the world, and 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 the child somehow uh, demanding wordlessly that this man who had brought him into the world love him, connect with him, and care for him, be a kind of father. Loneliness, one of Ellison's favorite phrases, and then and 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 so Bliss is almost a midwife's Hickman in a way to to become uh, to to answer the call of the Lord and mm. to begin to, if you want, do the Lord's work, the work of of the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit. Those those are things that uh, I don't think you can you can be uh, in, in in love with language or do the work of language, uh, do the work uh, of even of, uh, of any kind of creative work, or the other work that Ellison cared so profoundly about, uh, the work of citizenship and in, in, in the work of attempting to, to uh, help perfect uh, the union uh, of, of this country, if in fact that's possible, and Ellison believed it was possible. Uh, you can't do that without, without melding these different aspects of, of, uh, of a, that, that are in every human being. And then secondly, <clears throat> and this seems to me to be really important there there's there's bliss uh and uh as 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 kind of chilling as bliss's uh 
attitudes are and actions are. Uh, nevertheless, here's the story of somebody who is uh, doesn't have he doesn't have a, a, a birth father. Well, he had his father somewhere, but Hickman stands in for his father and, and raises him as best he can as a black child. And we don't know what what uh, who who Bliss's father was, and we don't know his his the the, the specificity of of his. Uh, of his of his parentage, except for his mother. Uh, well, here's this guy who who is uneasy about you know not knowing where exactly he comes from, being raised a black child, uh, being able to pass for white, uh, and and being a, one of those kind of ambitious American characters, very much in the in the tradition of that's Jay Gatsby, I think, decides he's going to invent himself. Hickman has invented him, after all, as a, as a black child. And Hickman uh, makes some demands on Bliss that, you know, you one wonder, and Hickman himself wonders whether he, he, made too, he was too stern. He made too many demands on Bliss, making him into a, a child preacher, making him serve Hickman's ends as a performer, as a, as, as a preacher, not, not but ends that had very much to do with Hickman's own ambition to be the best preacher that there was, or that he could he could be, and he needed Bliss's help for that. So uh, Bliss, uh, you know, gets into adolescence, young manhood, and decides to become, and that they, you know, the latest in that tradition of of the self-made man. And I mean that with all uh, deliberately to have all of the irony that that it that it's built into the phrase, the self-made man, and uh, as if he is as as, as uh, the vet said to Invisible Man, be your own father. You know, it's as if in in, the, in this novel, uh, Bliss, uh, uh, the the uh, adolescent and young man Bliss, becomes his own father with rather disastrous consequences. It, it, it seems to me he passes, and, and then he, again he he worships at the altar of the the uh, the bitch goddess of American success. He, we're making the movies, winding up in the Senate, but he has, he does this at a great cost. He does this at the uh, at, at, at the price he has to pay is renunciation of the people who raised him, loved him, and still do love him. Hickman and his congregation. So it seems to me, I, I feel all you know. You, you, and it's interesting. You, the as you move through your own life and you go through the the stages. I mean, first you're a child and and, and a young person, and and then you become you know you 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 get married maybe, and then you you have you have you have children. I have two. Two daughters. So you pass through. As I've been acquainted with Ellison's work and have worked on his his stuff, I've moved through various phases of my own life, and I find the I find that those those phases mirrored in the characters that of, of this novel, and uh, and also in in the kind of way. The other thing that's really wonderful picture of the lives of Hickman and Bliss Sunraider, the sense of, uh, that, that 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 they're changing, they're fluid, even even. Sunraider on his very deathbed, the delirium of, of uh, when, when he is uh, in the hospital and he hallucinates the three black men who come in the hovercraft to lift him off. And that's a hallucination. It's it's chaotic, but and it's a, it's chaos that that comes out of Sunraider's own mind. Uh, a long voice of Hickman that's present in that in that hospital room. It seems to me that the, that these these uh, I never see. <clears throat> it's, it's very interesting. I rarely see these characters in isolation. Mm. From one another, and I've been speaking about Hickman and Bliss. I would want to speak about Janie. I want to 
speak about Lee Willie Minifee, as Adam alluded to, all of the, the, the wonderful minor characters that come out of nowhere, Cleophas, for example, Love New, all of these people that, that uh, Ellison brings to life within the, within the pages. They, they're all kind of signposts along the, the journey that we're all taking. It strikes me that uh, I'd like to 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 wrap up with uh, the two two of you to talk about this novel as an artifact uh, of American history, and I think this is an in, the way this I think novel and part of the way this novel understands American history <clears throat> is I think influenced. You go right back to the beginning was that what changed Ellison's interest was the Wasteland by T. S. Eliot, and I think you see that running through all of his stuff, and I think that. This is maybe gives us a key to understand how he looked at history and at America itself. Yeah, I, I would say a, a little more about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I know where you're going, but if you want to say more. Well, well I, I just think that um, the modernist writing of T.S. Eliot and, and this uh, to, to reach for these kind of uh, inarticulate symbols that lurk beneath our, our the surface of our psyches and our societies um, and grab those up with language and to reassemble those into something that's very striking and unusual yet really has a, a, a powerful effect. And I think he did that with this, was trying to do that with this novel, wrestling through that. And I think that runs through a lot of his work. Well, that's very interesting because... Where, 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 what I would seize on from, from those comments, Rick, is that, that line that I won't say Eliot or one of his narrators, anyway, that <clears throat> the voice that emerges at the very end, almost at the very end of the, well, at the beginning of the very last passage in the Wasteland, these fragments I have shored against my ruin. And uh, the way Ellison worked, I think. Certainly Eliot and his sense of, of fragmentation and dislocation of, of language and experience was, was, was very, very important to uh, Ellison. But I also would have to put in a, a plug for Melville mm. and, for, and for Twain as, as well. Uh, and, 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 and just the, the, the sense of, of, <clears throat> of, the, of the, the enormity. Well, uh, Adam mentioned the phrase earlier, the beautiful absurdity of American identity. I think Ellison may be one way. I don't know if he's similar or not to Eliot. In some ways, uh, perhaps... Uh, the Eliot of the Four Quartets, for example, uh, the epigraph to Juneteenth, which Ellison, in the papers, uh, I found this, and, and that he, I believe, um, <clears throat> intended this to be the epigraph to the second novel, is out of is out of the Four Quartets, and it's a more it's about liberation. The word is used several times, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that, that that's where uh, there's again this kind of serenity. In other words, I think I think that 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 for Ellison that beautiful absurdity of American identity. It's oxymoronic. It's mm-hmm. paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Ellison did believe there was such a thing as American identity. I think Ellison was not uh, a completely a relativist. Now, I don't, I don't know whether in Eliot may, may in the wasteland come close. The later Eliot, of course, was not. But uh, there's a sense in which Ellison, I think, is, is, is always going to the territory. I mean, he believed that there was a territory there. Are you going to find it? Probably not, but it's there. The striving is important, and that I think that I think uh, connects Ellison very importantly to Faulkner. Adam, I mean, Ellison was in, in many ways a 19th century writer writing in the 20th. Those were the, <clears throat> the writers to, to whom he most often looked to for the moral commitment to the making of this this nation, and, and 
So I think what, while it formerly he was very much a writer of the 20th century, in his commitment to the question of, of morality and nationhood, he looks back to Roland and, and Crane and, and Emerson and, and his namesake and, and so forth. Uh, but I do want to pick up on, on your, your point about Elliot Rick in the second novel because I think while obviously Ellison uh, was greatly influenced by the wasteland as he talks about in many essays and, and we could see it as well in, in Elliot's influence in Invisible Man, I think it's really in the second novel that we, we see him in most direct communication with the multivocality, the, the, the kind of heteroglossia that we, we think of with, with Eliot. I mean, this is a book peopled with voices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Invisible Man, after all, was, was one man's memoir written in the first person, something that reaches out toward the collective with that uh, striking final sentence, and it's this which frightens me. Who knows, but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. But what the second novel does in my mind is to, to respond to that question, the challenge issued in that final line in, in many voices, in the voices of um, Wellborn McIntyre, a white newspaper reporter, in the voices of Hickman and Bliss, of course, but in the voices of a host of other characters of many races, both genders, across time, in, in a way that, that shows a kind of scope and ambition for this novel that goes far beyond what Ellison was attempting and achieved with Invisible Man. I think there's something to that, something of, of if I even dare say, the, the whiff of the great American novel, at least in, in the attempt at it, and perhaps in its failure, at least in achieving those, those grand ambitions, it echoes America, conflicted sort of thing, but also capable of brilliance, eloquence, and power. That's how I understand the second novel, as we see it in three days before the shooting, and that's certainly how I understand, and I think Ellison understood, America. I've been speaking with Adam Bradley and John F. Callahan. They're the editors of Three Days Before the Shooting. It's an edit of the unfinished manuscripts of Ralph Ellison in his attempt to write a second novel. Thank you for speaking with me, Adam. Thank you, Rick. And John. You're very welcome. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>